Good morning and welcome to uh, Stone Point Church. We're grateful that you're with us here on the Wills Point campus. We want to welcome you and all that are joining us online. Today we are continuing our series called Signs. This is actually week eight, although we are going to be taking a look at chapter 11. So, uh, so far into the series, uh, we have seen John have uh, an incredible picture of God and a beatific vision. We have seen a warning to the churches. We have seen uh, the seals of God being opened by the Lamb of God, which is Jesus that was slain. Uh, we have seen those seals fulfilled. We have seen judgments uh, as a part of a seven-year tribulation. Uh, we have seen a brief pause and then a continuing of dr- uh, judgments through uh, the trumpet judgments all the way up uh, until you get this picture of uh the 144,000 witnesses that are going to be preaching uh, in this seven-year tribulation period, uh, most likely in the last three and a half years, uh, those that are sealed, uh, 144,000 Jews as they go forth and they take the message and the proclamation of God's forgiveness, even in a day and an age where God is bringing uh, judgment upon the earth uh, to Gentiles who will not repent uh, and to uh, people who have just strayed from the Lord. Uh, We have seen demonic activity happening. Uh, We have seen a bottomless uh, pit that was opened. We've seen demonic forces unleashed. We have seen people literally wanting to run to the hills and to to die. They would rather die than to have the judgments of God. And so you've got all that. Then last week, uh, Cody did a great job of just uh, revealing to us uh, chapter 10 and just kind of the presence of God and the judgment's going to come, uh, kind of like a, a, a water of floods in a sense, that it's going to come quickly and swiftly. God is going to expedite his judgments on the earth and, and it's going to be something that people are not going to want to be a part of. Though you get to Revelation 11, we see that there are two interesting people that are going to crop up, and they're called the two witnesses, and uh, there's a lot of uh, thought as to who they are and what they do, Uh, but today we're going to dive in and we're going to take a look at Revelation 11. Again, we're glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, hope that you're flipping there. Uh, We're going to dive in now, starting with verse 1. John uh, says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And so during this time, it appears that John in chapter 11 is given this rod, and it's a a rod most likely uh, that of an Old Testament type rod, which most likely would have been around eight foot, and it's used to to measure. Even in Malachi, he was instructed to measure the earth. The idea of measuring here and the instruction that John has given is that there is an authority and a presence of God that he is over all things. And in this case, it's the temple of God in which he has instructed him to, to measure. It's the idea that there's great authority over the temple and that God is going to exhibit that authority here in this time. This time meaning the last 42 months of, of the tribulation. And so we see from uh, Daniel that the, the tribulation would most likely be a seven-year period. And then in that seven-year tribulation, tribulation period. There's going to be three and a half years where there's peace and the Antichrist is going to uh, develop a 
ten-nation coalition, and as they do that, they're going to make peace with the nation of Israel. nation of Israel is going to be duped. They're going to be fooled into thinking that this man is worthy of having a relationship with, and so they're going to have a relationship with the Antichrist. He's going to break peace, though, about three and a half years in. And in that three and a half years, you're going to see the judgments of God really begin to come forth. And so I believe that this, when you see the seals and the trumpets, and then it's going to usher in later the full bold judgments, the final judgments of God. But here uh, we see that God is even concerned with what's happening in the temple. Uh, He's instructed to measure that temple, but you'll see interesting that he leaves out something. And uh, it's known as the court of the Gentiles, which was a part of the temple. And here uh, it seems that it's left out for this reason, Because the Gentiles are corrupt. They have been left out for a reason. It's been given over to the nations. The idea is that it's been given over to their depravity and to their sin nature and to their problems. We've seen in previous chapters at this point that the Gentiles will not repent. Even though they have seen the judgments of God, even though they have experienced horrific things, they will not look to the God of heaven and earth. They will not set their eyes on him. They will not repent of their ways. And so it seems to that God is leaving them out of, of this idea of the measuring of the temple. It says in the latter part of verse 2 that they will trample the holy city for 42 months, meaning that there's going to be the idea, uh, Daniel 11, 26 and 27, uh, that the Antichrist is going to bring horrific judgment. And he's going to bring judgment upon the earth, but also uh, he's going to bring great fury among the people of Israel. So even the people of Israel are going to be oppressed in these days. Uh, you're going to see that later. In Revelation chapter 12, uh, as we look at verses 13 and 17, when we get there, and you're going to see it in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus even speaks about it. You, in a sense, have an antichrist who is the abomination of desolation. He set himself up. He has said, you should worship me and no one else. He oppresses people that oppose him. He brings great uh, war and famine and peril and sword. Many will be killed in that day. And in a sense, uh, even in that time, God is still using it to raise up someone for his purposes. That someone is found in verse 3. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so you think about this, Daniel had spoke about a seven-year period, three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of calamity. Uh, we, we have seen that that has been broken out in parts. Here, you even see that as there is uh, different judgments upon the earth, as the seals of God are open, as the trumpet judgments come forth, as the bowl judgments come and they're poured out and God vindicates his purpose, he's even raising up people to preach a message of hope and reconciliation to God. And that message seems to be proclaimed to Gentiles that were received, but mostly, I want to hear this, to the nation of Israel, to a nation that rejected Jesus, uh, who rejected God, who had idolatry, who has been judged. They are one day going to see God in all of his glory. They're going to repent and they're going to come back. And God is going to use 144,000 Jews that are sealed for his purposes, we've seen, but there's also going to be two incredible men that are going to preach. They're going to prophesy. And that word prophesy in the Greek is really the idea that they're going to be preaching. It's not necessarily a prophetic warning uh, like that of the prophet, something to come, as much as it is 
a word from God. They're preaching and they're teaching in the cities and they are asking people to believe in in God, to uh, believe in his son Jesus and to repent of their sin and to come back. And it seems that the 144,000 and these two witnesses are proclaiming this message to the Jews and they're doing it for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. That last three and a half years, they're going forth and they're clothed in sackcloth. The idea is that sackcloth is a garment that they would clothe themselves in in the Old Testament when they wanted to uh, put ashes on their head and they would clothe in sackcloth as an act of repentance. And it was just a heart that represented sorrow and remorse for what they had done. And so here, these two witnesses go, they preach and they're clothed in sackcloth. And they are preaching a message even in the darkest of times. Now, this isn't new. Uh, God has always raised up people to speak to the nation of Israel in dark times. And uh, you see that throughout your entire Bible. Uh, matter of fact, you had Ahab and you had Jezebel and God would bring about Elijah. You had Pharaoh and a hard heart and God would bring a guy uh, named Moses. You had the rebellion of Eli's sons and God would bring forth a guy named Samuel. You had the judges and the rebellion there and you would see the kinsman redeemer, uh, a guy named Boaz and, and uh, Ruth in that story. You had David and you had his rejection of God and his disobedience as he goes forth and lays with a lady named Bathsheba. God raises up a friend named Jonathan to go and proclaim a message to him. You had Israel's rebellion and you had, during that time of rebellion, you had God bring up prophets and they would go and they would preach to the nations. So you always have God raising up someone to go and speak. And in this time, in a very bleak point in the tribulation, the last three and a half years where the calamity of God is coming, he raises up two witnesses to go and preach. It says in verse 4 that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, if, if you have read the Old Testament, you've probably stumbled across something that reminded you of two lampstands. And, and what you see is in Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. And I would love to take you through that entire two chapters, uh, but I don't have time to do that today. And so let me just sh- share with you a couple things. One, I share with you this, that you should go read it. Uh, because what you see in Zechariah chapter 3 is the prophet Zechariah commissioned to go and, and instruct people in a time where uh, you have the commission to go and rebuild Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, God is saying, hey, go back. And, and what it seems to be is that Israel doesn't believe that they're worthy of going back and uh, rebuilding the temple. They don't know exactly who's going to lead the charge. And Zechariah is commissioned by God to go to two people. Uh, one of them is a guy named Joshua that you see in Zechariah chapter 3. And uh, he's the high priest of the time. And so Zechariah will go to him and say, hey, Joshua, I've received a word from the Lord. You're the guy to go, and you are to be the priest for the nation. You are to reconcile the nation to God. You are to make things right. Then you also see Zechariah go to another guy who happened to be the ruler of the, of the nation at that time and uh, was a significant and prominent leader. His name was Zerubbabel. And, and so Zechariah goes to them. And in Zechariah chapter 4, it's interesting because There's a conversation happening, and you'll see that there's a handful of things that are mentioned. It seems that there is a a lampstand there, which would be significant uh, in that day and time because it would be a reflection of a menorah. If you know uh, anything about Jewish culture, you've seen at Christmas and 
Uh, times like Hanukkah, that there's a menorah. It's a lampstand has seven, uh, you know, uh, sticks that are coming out with candles that are lit. And this menorah, in the Old Testament, was always lit by olive oil. And so they would use olive oil. Well, here in Zechariah chapter four, it's interesting because Zechariah takes and he he makes a culmination from God of of these two men and them being, in a sense, olive trees that have spouts coming from them. And these spouts, in a sense, continue to light the seven candles of the menorah where they never go out. So this kind of an Old Testament reference about what's going to come. And so you have this priest and you have this ruler, this king in Zechariah chapter three and four who are gonna speak on behalf of the nation and in a sense are going to lead them to begin rebuilding. And it's a it's a prophetic sense, not only in Zechariah's day of the things to come, but it's also in the prophetic sense of what John would use here as he sees uh, this incredible vision from God about two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The idea is, is that God's going to raise up two people who are going to be like that of the high priest Joshua in that day, and like the ruler Zerubbabel in that day, and that they're going to be significant in seeing restoration. You, when you see a restoration in Zechariah's day, it happened because there was a priest and a king. And here, it seems that there's going to be one that's going to speak a prophetic word and is going to rule. And uh, these two men are going to be like olive trees that are in a sense, pouring forth oil on the nation of Israel that will be a delight to them and that will relight uh, them as a nation. In verse 5, it says, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. The, uh, the picture here is that there are two witnesses and that if anybody messes with them, that they're going to be consumed. Matter of fact, it goes on in the latter part of verse 5, and it says, If anyone would harm them, this is how he would be doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, real quickly, you see that these two witnesses are going to proclaim the message of the gospel. They're going to call people to repentance in sackcloth. They're going to do so for three and a half years, and they're going to preach fervently this message. And when people oppose them, they have the authority from God to bring down significant oppression on people and even to the point of killing them. Now, the question is, is uh, who are these men? And there's a lot of debate uh, over the years and lots of scholars uh, wonder who they are. P- perhaps, maybe uh, it's Elijah and Enoch, two men in your Bible that never died. Uh, that's a great thing. A lot of people think uh, Hebrews 9.27 is appointed uh, for man wants to die. Uh, the problem with that theory, though, is this. If you use that verse alone to get those two men, what do you do about people like Lazarus who died twice because they were resurrected? Uh, the challenge there is, is not really uh, the sense of that a man only dies once because obviously in the day of Lazarus and other people that were resurrected, they would die twice. So the goal of this is not to to speculate too much, but maybe even look at these miracles. And I would tell you that even though I have an opinion about who these guys are, it is merely speculation. We don't know for sure. And so it's very difficult for us to get too dogmatic about it. But there's two things that I think um, 
interests me about who these guys are, and, 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 and there's really lots of scripture, but uh, one of which is just the, the signs and the miracles. I mean, you think about that, um, you've got Elijah, who in 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, he brought down fire upon uh, two groups of men. Uh, you see in, in James chapter 5, uh, the half-brother of Jesus writes that there was a point where Elijah prayed for God to shut the, the heavens of rain, and that happened. For three and a half years, there was drought on the earth because of Elijah's prayer. In 2 Kings chapter 2, you see Elijah being called up, uh, and he was carried to heaven. He never died. Uh, you see time and time again that there was a, a return of this promise that Elijah might actually come back. He, he also see uh, the same of things like Moses. Matter of fact, Moses did some pretty significant things. It says here in uh, verse 6 that what? They had the power over to strike the, the earth with every kind of plague. That's kind of what Moses did. Matter of fact, you see that in Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 12. Moses bring about plagues. Uh, you also go, well, what, but Moses died. But here's the deal about Moses. We know two things that are significant about Moses. One is that even though he died, he was buried in a place where no one except God knew where his body was. There's also a reference in the book of Jude that there seemed to be some argument and some dispute about Moses' body, uh, even in the heavenlies. And so it seems that maybe God had a plan with, with Moses uh, to come. And so we don't know exactly how all that transpires, but we do see significant miracles about them. Uh, you also see something else that's interesting, is if you remember uh, on the Mount of, of Transfiguration, you see uh, Jesus and, and a handful of the apostles. And what do they do? They see Elijah and they see Moses in the transfiguration. And so maybe that's another uh, key that these two men might possibly be who they are. I'll tell you this, Malachi uh, prophesied about the fact that a guy named Elijah would return. Matter of fact, uh, Jesus even asked his apostles, hey, who do people say that you are, uh, that I am? And, and a lot of people speculated that there would be a return of Elijah, that maybe he would be one of the redemptive purposes of Israel. And we know that Jesus is the main redemptive purpose, but Malachi prophesied, and I think all Jews expected that Elijah might potentially return. I think they also believed there would be one like a prophet of Moses that would potentially return. But consider these words in uh, Malachi chapter 4. I just want you to see these for, uh, for yourself. And so here's six verses. I'm going to run through them real quickly. And it just says this, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Sounds very familiar to what we just read. Not a root or a branch will be left them. Uh, if you think about this, the idea of a branch meaning uh, that of, a, of hope. And, and ultimately, Jesus was referred to as a branch. And so uh, if you think about us, we would say that uh, we are connected to the vine, that we are the branches. Uh, matter of fact, we bear much fruit because of Jesus. Now here in this day, there's going to be judgment and there will be no hope for fruit or a branch. Verse 2 says, but you will revere my name. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his race. You will go out with frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees, the laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children of their parents or else I will come and strike the land 
with total destruction. Uh, it seems here that you get two men that are final witnesses. I think, personally, I can't prove it, but it's going to be Moses and Elijah. I think it's going to be one who uh, deals with the law and one who deals with the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Verse 7 says uh, that these men will finish their testimony. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beasts that rise from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So these two men are, are going to be killed. And so it seems that there's three and a half years that just like the 144,000 witnesses, they're sealed, they're protected, they can bring down uh, miraculous signs from God on people. People can be consumed, he, they can bring down plagues, they can do all of these incredible things. But there's going to be a day and age in which their purposes are fit, uh, final. And when they're finally finished, God is going to allow them to be destroyed. And they're going to be destroyed by the beast that rise from the bottomless pit. Um, this is Satan, potentially uh, him, and it could even be uh, through the power that's handed over to the Antichrist. Either way, they're going to be destroyed by an adversary of God, and, and they're going to... Uh, conquer them. They're going to kill them. They're going to leave their city uh, or their bodies in the city. And, and this city, the idea here is a great city. The idea of a wicked Babylon, a day and age where people have rebelled against God. They're doing their own thing. This city is symbolically called what Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Gomorrah, known for their immorality. Uh, Egypt, known for being enslaved to people. That's what this last seven-year tribulation will be. It'll be, uh, it'll be people indulging in their sin. It'll be idolatry. It'll be people enslaved to the ways of the world, to this former idea of Babylon, this religious thought and process. There will be uh, people that are, are wicked. They will not repent. And they will kill these two men as they have preached for three and a half years. And when they do so, they're going to lay them in the city. Matter of fact, look what happens, verse 9. For three and a half days, uh, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, they'll gaze at their dead bodies and they will refuse to let them pl be placed in a tomb. And they who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. If you can imagine, here's what's happening. There is a celebration in the streets. People are burning buildings probably. I mean, they're having a riot of sorts. They are rejoicing. Why? Because two men who have preached repentance and the holiness of God and the judgment to come, the wrath of God that will be revealed, they're dead. And they're finally rejoicing because these two men are no longer able to preach. And so people come at, at, from peoples and tribes and tongues and languages. They are excited to see that these two prophets of God, these two men who have brought down much calamity on the earth because of people that are, uh, have oppressed them, they're finally destroyed. And people think, wow, the messenger of God are gone. Let's celebrate. Let's party. Let's live it up. Then verse 11 happens. But, and this is one of those significant things in your Bible. You can underline this word but right here. Why? But 
Three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. These men are dead. They have preached. People think their voice is gone, but God gives them breath, and they become what? Alive again. Verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went to heaven, meaning there's two men in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Can you imagine what that must have been like to see the enemies of God with fear in their face because these two men who they have rejected, who they've spit upon, they've rejoiced in his death, in their death, are now alive. They've been called up to God. They see it. They witness these incredible events. And you have to wonder, what are they thinking? And then verse 13 tells us that there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. And the question is, is who are the rest of them? Because you obviously seen throughout this process that as you have seen earthquakes through this, uh, this time of tribulation, you have seen uh, judgments of God. You have seen cities destroyed. You have seen rivers and seas and ships destroyed. You have seen God bring judgment from heavens. All of these things, there's been no repentance here. It seems that there are some who give glory to God in heaven. The question is, who are they? And it seems to me, and I think most people would agree that in this time, as 144,000 people have uh, have gone out as sealed Jews preaching. You have two witnesses as they've preached. Once they were dead and they were resurrected, it is, is if, as if God peeled back the scales of the nation of Israel and they would be saved. See, the whole purpose of the tribulation is to bring God's judgment upon an earth who's rejected him and to put a rod on the back of Israel who refused to see Jesus as his son. And in this point in time, God has put a rod on their back. He has oppressed Israel. He has brought 144,000 to preach, two witnesses to bring down miracles from heaven to preach. And finally, the people of Israel see God clearly and they respond to the gospel and they are terrified and they give glory to God. You see that same act of repentance, which I think is the similar one happened in Revelation chapter 16, but also in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, it says they encouraged, uh, they were encouraged to fear God and they would give him glory. Why? Because you see an event transpire here in Revelation 11 that reminds me a whole lot of some other events that transpired. Think about this for just a second. There are two men that come from God and they represent him as a man, uh, as men, uh, one that represents the law and Moses and I, I think Elijah and the prophets. They have a three and a half year ministry. They call men to repent. They give signs and they do wonders. They're killed, but they cannot be buried. They, they complete this incredible mission of God. Then they, they die and people rejoice over their death. But then there's a resurrection three days later. There's a voice of approval from God. The earth shakes. 
People were terrified. God receives glory. And then they're ushered up to heaven and they seem to be in the presence of God. It reminds me a whole lot of this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was called from God to go. And what did he do? He would, he would preach and he would do miraculous signs and wonders. And he would call people to follow him, the God of Israel. He would call men to repent and he would uh, be rejected. He would be spit upon. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be uh, killed on a cross of Calvary. People would celebrate over his death. Even angels and demons thought that they had him. And then, guess what? Lo and behold, not on the first day, not on the second day, but on the third day, Jesus will rise again. Can I get an amen? And because of that, you would see that God would give great uh, voice of approval to Jesus, and he would usher him home Um, at Pentecost, and Jesus would sit at the right hand of the Father. See, my friends, these two witnesses are a representation to the nation of Israel that you miss the first Messiah. I hope you'll see these two men as a representation of the law and the prophets and the hope of God to come. You miss Jesus. Now will you respond to Jesus and will you see him? In verse 14, it says, and woe. The second woe has now passed, and the third woe is soon to come. And in verse 15, um, it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet. So at this point, we've seen six trumpets. Uh, We have seen a picture of God's judgment. We have seen these two witnesses, and now this final seventh trumpet is going to be blown and there were loud voices in heaven and they said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. There is about to be a return to the Edenic covenant. God is about to reign on the earth and we are going to be vice regents of God. There's going to be a millennial reign. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of Israel and then it's going to usher us as we get to the very end of this book in Revelation, a final culmination of heaven and earth, a new Jerusalem, a holy city, the people of God, understanding God in all of his fullness. All covenants will finally be entirely fulfilled. God is going to to set up his throne and we're longing for that. Verse 16, it says, In that time, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets of the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. In essence, uh, this is all about to come to a head. And Jesus is going to sit on his throne and he is going to rule. That means that Antichrist will be destroyed. That means that people uh, who do not know God will be cast out of his presence. People who do know God will be ushered into this reign with him. We are going to reign and rule with Christ. We are going to love him and serve him. It appears too that uh, Old Testament saints most likely here are going to get their rewarding and their serving uh, for their serving. The prophet of the saints, both small and great, are going to be ushered into a millennial kingdom as well. It's going to be this incredible picture of God bringing it all of the pieces and setting them in place. And verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hell. 
When you think about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, uh, it was one of those things that you, you couldn't look at it, you couldn't touch it, you couldn't go near it. If you touched it, you were going to die in your footsteps. Uh, it was a holy picture, and that's what's going to come. God's temple and heaven will be open. It's as if you see the Ark of the Covenant, something you couldn't touch and you couldn't see. Um, and then there's this incredible idea of flash of light, and it just reminds you of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, 16 through 19, the, the incredible presence of God being revealed and manifested upon his people. It's going to be a great day. But in order to see God revealed, there's many things that are going to happen. There's going to be people who are judged. There's going to be witnesses who preach. They're going to be killed. They're going to be destroyed. But in all of this, God has a purpose and a plan to not only vindicate his judgment upon an earth who rejects him, to bring back an, a nation called Israel who's rejected him. But in all of this, he is setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that Satan and adversary will never be able uh, to mastermind a plan against. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled it all through a death a burial, and a resurrection. And we are thankful for what he has done. And we praise God for his glory and his goodness and for our opportunity to celebrate all that God has done because of his wonderful son, Jesus. Church, I love you. And I pray that today you're able to walk out of here and see an incredible picture of the two witnesses, the prophetic words, the preaching that will happen. But most of all, I pray that you'll see the correlation of them fulfilling the purpose of God just like Jesus did as he brought about forgiveness to people who our hearts had gone astray. So may we see this, may we rejoice in it, and may we long for the day of God fulfilling his overall purposes on the earth. May we long for the day of a new and holy city of Jerusalem. May we long for the day that our eyes are no longer caught in idolatry and immorality like that of, of uh, Lot's wife. As she was leaving the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, she looked back and she was turned to salt. My friends, may we not look back on this world and may we keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter the one that we put our hope and our strength and our refuge in, the Son of God named Jesus. Church, love you. Let me pray for you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your word that has been revealed. I pray, God, that you would use it to encourage our hearts. I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us of your goodness, that, Lord, there is no enemy, there is no adversary that will ever usurp your authority in a way that it takes away the power of God, that even in dark times, you are with us. Even in valleys, God, you are with us. We shall not fear, according to Psalm 23, when we walk through valleys uh, that seem to be a mere shadow of death. God, we know you're with us. We know that in these last days, when you talk about a seven-year tribulation, that God, you're going to bring forth your judgment. And we know that there are going to be many people that, have, uh, that miss out on you and, and your plan for eternity because they reject you, because of their idolatry, because of their sinfulness, and because of their outright defiance of a holy God. But Lord, we also know that in this time, you are going to save a nation called Israel, and you are going to even bring about many Gentiles who will repent of their sins and they will follow you. God, we pray that your purposes are finalized, that they're revealed, and we thank you for this word to John that gives us 
an inkling into the things that are to come. Give us wisdom and grace, and most of all, would you give us perseverance to continue to run our race and to fight the good fight. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, amen.